This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Thank you, Ronnie. My name is Zach Lutz. I'm Director of Family and Youth Ministries here at Trinity Church. I'm so excited to be with you all and to continue our sermon series in the book of Acts. I'm going to give just a little bit of context of where Ronnie left us off last week. See, in the book of Acts, Jesus um, had died and resurrected in the Gospels. In the beginning of Acts, Luke, this, the second part of of his gospel, as it were, this continuing letter to give faith and assurance to Theophilus was intended to continue where the story left off. And the disciples asked Jesus, Is, are you going to bring your kingdom now? And he said, no, now I'm going to my father, and he knows the time that my kingdom will come. But stay here and wait for a power. Stay in Jerusalem and wait for the power to be my witnesses. Now, a couple days after Jesus ascended into heaven to the right hand of the Father, the disciples are waiting in Jerusalem dutifully, kind of wondering, where'd Jesus go? And what's the deal with this power? And how are we supposed to know when it shows up? So a couple days after, there's actually this festival, this Jewish holiday that happened in Jerusalem. There would have been thousands of people streaming in because it required the pilgrimage pilgrimage of male Jews to come and give offerings. And these offerings were the first fruits of their harvest. So they were in some sense tithing. You know how like when we pass an offering plate, they're giving back some of the blessings that they've received to the Lord. And they would come together and they would worship and they would offer these tithes. So there's a bunch of people in Jerusalem. The disciples are no doubt also worshiping and giving their offerings alongside all of these people. And you can imagine them praying, Lord, when is this power going to come? Because the disciples knew something about when the Messiah came. The, the, when the Messiah came, it was supposed to be this radical change of everything that they saw. The land of Israel was supposed to be overflowing with abundance so that these tithes and offerings wouldn't have been able to be contained in a building. People should have been serving the Lord out of their own hearts. The nations would have looked at Jerusalem and said, man, they are doing something right. What is going on? We've got to go learn about this God. But if the disciples were honest, when they looked around at that Pentecost feast and festival, their world looked much the same as it had four years ago before they'd ever met Jesus. Same political parties vying for power. Same people streaming in, making offerings. There's not any greater abundance. There's still the same problems. Now, at this moment, something truly miraculous happens. This power comes from heaven. A sound of rushing wind fills the space where they are. Fire comes down from heaven, divides, and rests over the disciples' heads, and they begin to speak. But when they're speaking, the thousands of people that are around them are not hearing them in the common language of the day. They're hearing them in the language of the villages that they grew up in, in each their own, so that when one person speaks, 10 or 20 different people are hearing them in different dialects, different languages. It says that they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and rightly, the people around are like, what is going on? Are these people drunk? 
What does this mean? And it's at this moment that Peter stands up to deliver a sermon. And this sermon is going to explain what it means when the Holy Spirit is poured out. So today you have the privilege of listening to a sermon about a sermon. But I'd invite you to stand and hear Peter's sermon, which is God's word. We're starting in Acts chapter 2, verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about this patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his words were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 
The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. May it bless you and me. Please be seated. Now that was a lot of reading for a sermon, but actually it was a relatively short sermon. Mine is going to be longer. Uh, It's going to take more time for me to say what I'm going to say than it took Peter to say what he's going to say. But I think when we read his sermon, we have to understand that he was speaking to a specific audience. And so when he's trying to explain the miraculousness of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and why it's important, he uses very peculiar references. In fact, the first thing after saying these men clearly aren't drunk is he goes to the prophet Joel. And I think a good question for us to ask is, why, why would he do that? What is Peter doing? And the thing is, is that Peter knew his Bible really well. And his audience knew their Bible really well, too, in ancient Judaism, the way that they talked about it. And what Peter was intending to do was to remind his audience and bring to mind an ancient curse and an ancient promise. By quoting Joel, what he's saying is, hey, you, you know this, this ancient promise that we've still been waiting for for thousands of years? It's here. But let's explain what this ancient curse is. And it concerns Adam and Eve, the first created humans. They lived face to face with God and were given tasks by God to have dominion over the earth, to exercise authority. Adam named the animals, and God delighted to hear the names that Adam would create. Everything was good, indeed very good. But when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, they separated themselves from the life giver. And so instead of experiencing everlasting life as they were intended to, there came an ancient curse. Death. Separation from God. Separation from one another. Separation from creation. But in that very moment, at that very disobedience, at the the delivery of that very curse, God follows it up with a promise that would become this ancient promise that one would come one day, one person would come that would take that curse and turn it on its head so that dead things would actually come to life. And over the course of the biblical story, we get more and more pieces about what this is going to look like. And so Peter could quote Joel or could quote a passage like we read today in our Old Testament passage, Ezekiel 36, and people would understand that he's talking about this ancient promise, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And you can see it there in the quote from Joel in verse 17, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. In verse 18, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. What Peter is keying in and getting his audience to understand through all of this argument is that Jesus is now pouring out the promised Holy Spirit. And that means that the ancient curse has been overturned. If the Holy Spirit is here, as Joel says, it means that new life is coming into people. Now, this is a lot of kind of abstract Old Testament theological terms. 
I think it's best if we look at Peter's life. He's the one giving the sermon. And if you think about what you might know from Peter that's recorded in the gospel stories, I'm just going to list a couple. But Peter was a guy who experienced really high spiritual highs and really low spiritual lows, and they usually followed right after each other. So in one instance, the disciples are on a boat in a lake, and then they see someone walking, and there's not a lot of light out, and they don't, they're not sure who it is, and they, they, they think it's a ghost, and they finally call out, and it's like, no, this is, this is the Lord Jesus walking on water. Peter has enough courage and faith to say, Lord, if you will, call me out onto that water. And Jesus is like, okay, dude, come on. Peter hops out of the boat, and he stands on water. But the very next line is he looks at the wind and the waves, looks away from his Savior, doubts the word of his Lord, and begins drowning. And just to like put this in a picture, Peter had such courage to step out on water, but then like the very next instant, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, is looking him in the face and saying, you have little faith. I mean... Talk about going from like a spiritual high to a spiritual low. Another example is that Jesus is asking the disciples who people says that he is. And Peter, something clicks and he's like, you're the Messiah, which is that loaded ancient term that means that someone's going to come that's going to overturn the curse. But this is before Jesus has, had risen from the dead. Maybe he was just a really good prophet. How was he supposed to know that he was the Messiah? But he did. Peter could confess that he was the Messiah. He got something right. He's praised by Jesus. In the very next instance, he's trying to correct Jesus' understanding of the Messiah. And is like, no, 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 no. The Messiah can't suffer, Jesus. And Jesus looks at him and calls him Satan. Talk about a spiritual high, recognizing the Messiah and then being called Satan by that Messiah. Because he was offering a temptation to Christ that there could be a way to rule without outside of God's plan for suffering. Maybe the last and most famous instance, we could find others in Peter's life, uh, is him saying that he would follow his Lord anywhere. And the night that Jesus is arrested, he has the courage once again to not flee like some of the others did, but pursue Jesus through the night in his trials. But as he's warming himself by the fire, when the moment comes to defend his friend and say, yeah, I am actually associated with him, he denies Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. Peter was keenly aware that his spiritual lows did not signify him being indwelt with the Holy Spirit. He was keenly aware that he was not the one that could overturn the curse. And when the pouring out of the Holy Spirit happens and he sees it happen amongst his people, something again clicks in Peter's brain and he goes, it's not about my spiritual lows. Christ defeated death so that I don't have to face it. My record condemns me. My record puts me underneath that ancient curse. But the one who could not be held by death was vindicated by God, and he pours out his spirit. So that on Peter's record, instead of seeing things like doubter, tempter, denier, 
He sees, friend, well done, my good and faithful servant, child of the living God. What Peter is doing is he's saying to his audience, no matter if you were there the day that Jesus was crucified, casting stones as he went by carrying his cross, no matter what is on your record, repent and be baptized. Your record will not only be cleared, giving you a blank slate, but you will receive the title and position of Christ by the power of his Holy Spirit. It's really easy for us to get caught up in what the Holy Spirit means. And for Peter, the, the most important thing that the Holy Spirit means for you is that it, it gives you the word of God and shows you that you are actually vindicated by Christ, not by anything that you have done. I hope that you've seen that in our service with some of our catechism questions and other things, and I hope you, you hear that about the Christian faith that we really do not have what it takes We desperately need Jesus and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit so unites you to him that you can be free, free from being a slave to sin. You can be free to change, free to serve him, free to be at rest. The most important thing for Peter about the pouring out of the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit vindicates us by uniting us to the vindicating power of Christ's resurrection. But Peter also has a, another understanding, and you have to remember what he was doing in Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, right, he's waiting for Jesus' kingdom to come, and they're asking, are you going to bring your kingdom now? And he says, no, but I'll give you power to be witnesses of my kingdom. And Pastor Ronnie talked a little bit about this this week, and you can see in verse 38, when he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You'll receive this power. And his idea was that once you became disciples, it wasn't just that your slate was cleaned, you're giving a new record, you're justified and vindicated before God and in right standing before him, but you were actually empowered to witness, to be a witness of the coming of a different kind of kingdom. Now, to understand this, Peter, the instruction that he was given from the Lord in Acts chapter 1 was that he was supposed to witness Jesus' kingdom in Jerusalem, which he's doing right now, Judea and Samaria, and even into the ends of the earth. We can describe it this way. In, in biblical language, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit meant that the declaration of the kingdom of God is to be proclaimed as far as the curse went. How far did that ancient curse go? And I've talked a little bit about it. It separated husband from wife right there in the beginning, Adam and Eve. And then we see shortly after, Cain kills Abel. We see communities separating and dividing over culture, going to war. We see Slavery. We see unjust practices in banking and real estate. We see uh, power grabs and land claims all throughout the story of Scripture. 
The idea is, is that what Adam and Eve were supposed to be doing, ruling over creation in a way that declares God's kingdom principles at work, all of that had been twisted and cursed so that their rule was all misshapen and distorted and led to oppression and brokenness and hurt and pain. So if Peter is given this Holy Spirit to witness even unto the ends of the earth, what does that mean for us being witnesses? How far is the curse found in our world? And I think you've got to imagine what Peter was given in charge of. Like, he spoke, and he was a leader of a church, and that was the authority in, in the world that he was given. And so he was empowered to declare that within those spheres and to form churches and establish leaders. But there were a hundred other disciples, and about to be 3,000 more, who had all been given authority in different areas of life, shipbuilding and politics, tent making, crop growing, banking and real estate and religion. You've been gifted and given talents and responsibilities that with the power of the Holy Spirit enables you to take dominion again over the things that you've been given authority. You have been given power to declare God's kingdom, not only in your words about Jesus Christ being king, which is also very true, but also in the way that you live your life, in the way that you treat your spouses, in the way that you raise your children, in the way that you run your businesses, in the way that you enforce law, and in the way that you heal patients, in the way that you care for neighbor, in the way that you play at the beach. The indwelling Holy Spirit allows you to proclaim over every inch of creation, Jesus is Lord, and he's taking it all back. Now, when I say things like that, I'm, I'm keenly aware that the things that I've been given authority over, I, tend, I, I screw up a lot. So like given this power of the Holy Spirit, I don't, I don't feel like I often see it. Uh, and sometimes um, I... I I think it's helpful for us to look back at the life of Peter. Because even after the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, he's one of the first people to understand that the church is going to be including a whole new people group. In fact, anybody who's not Jewish, he gets a vision that Gentiles are going to be brought in to this new movement that God's doing. He's the first one. He can declare it and testify to it. And yet, Paul will say later in his letters that Peter was afraid to be around those people. He was afraid they might get him dirty, soil his reputation. The indwelling power of the Holy Spirit for Peter didn't remove his spiritual lows. In fact, it probably took him to deeper spiritual lows. It showed him just how much he needs and can only call upon the name of Jesus. That is the only thing that Peter has. But I would like you to reflect on that a little bit because that meant that when Peter went about his apostleship, he was able to be corrected by people. And if you think about what the fruits of the Spirit are, love, joy, peace, 
patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Ronnie hinted at this last week, but when you're working with that coworker who really pushes your patience, or your child is just that nagging, or your teachers are just overwhelming you with work that seems unfair, and you say, I don't have enough patience, kindness, love, or self-control, and then you exercise just a little bit. That is a supernatural power of God. The gift of the Holy Spirit making you more like Jesus. You have no claims to vindication on your own power, but you experience being dead and coming to life by the power of the Holy Spirit. The second thing that Peter thinks is really important is not just vindication by power of the Holy Spirit, but also coronation for royal duties. But royal duties that are executed humbly underneath the rule of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's a children's fiction tale where four siblings enter a world that's hidden inside of their wardrobe. And this world is called Narnia. And it's ruled, when they enter the story, by this usurping witch. And there's an ever-long winter. Everything is frozen solid. But as the story progresses, the rightful king enters the land again. They start to see hints of spring popping through the snow because the rightful king has come. The curse is being rolled back. And after an epic battle between the rightful king and the usurping witch, this king takes these four children and actually uses strangely biblical language as he coronates them, kings and queens, sons of Adam, kings of Narnia, bear the name well. Daughters of Eve, Queens of Narnia, bear the name well. There's something beautiful in that story that the king invites people into ruling underneath his rule, gives them power to restrain evil and promote good as far as it is within their ability to do so, understanding that he's the only one with the authority to actually do it. But he's given them a little bit. In Peter's sermon, Jesus Christ, having ascended to the right hand of the Father, until the time is fulfilled when he shall return in glory, has poured out a power on all of his people and all of you and me that has coronated you with a mission to restrain evil and promote good under the rule of our good Lord and King. If I can borrow the king of Narnia's words, and modify them a little bit. Sons and daughters of the living God, to those who bear the name of Jesus Christ and rest in his vindication only, you are royalty under his command. You have power to restrain evil and promote good, not only in yourself, but in this, the the areas of authority that you have been given and the gifts that you have been given in this world. 
You've been given that authority to proclaim the rule of the king as far as the curse may be found. Let us bear the name well. Would you pray with me? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. We are reminded through Peter's sermon today about the ancient curse and the ancient promise. How Christ overturned the ancient curse and can make dead things alive. Holy Spirit, by your power, I ask that you would comfort us in our spiritual lows, point us back to Jesus, our only hope. Do not permit the accuser to have a foothold in our lives. Holy Spirit, empower us to declare the return of the King as far as the ancient curse may be found until he comes again. Amen.